This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's made its way to everyone's doorstep, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Hope you're paying attention. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. So the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com, where we are now finally, I think, maybe, hopefully, drying out a little bit here on the West Coast as the rains are finally leaving us uh, here. Uh, so, Desi Doyen, <laughs> you've got a green news report later on. Yes. I suspect it will be nothing but good news for us all. Oh, you know, I gone. like to deliver As the good ever. news nothing with the environment and climate change. But nothing but good cheery, news. Cheery, fun, and giggles for all. That's ahead on the broadcast. But first, uh, here's what we knew before Monday night. And even if much of America hadn't known about it, a lot of folks in New Mexico, where we've got a number of uh, excellent terrestrial affiliates, a number of folks in New Mexico, uh, and certainly those in and around Albuquerque in Bernalillo County, knew about all of this prior to Monday night. But uh, here is sort of what uh, we knew. Prior to Monday, on December 4, last year, around 4.40 in the afternoon, eight shots were fired at Bernalillo County Commissioner uh, Adrian Barboa's home in southeast Albuquerque. Barboa said bullets went through her front door as her family was preparing to celebrate Christmas. No idea why or who was responsible for it at the time, but as you can imagine, it is terrifying particularly as a public official, and particularly in these days that we are now in. Four days later, on December 8, State Representative Javier uh, Javier Martinez, the majority floor leader in the New Mexico House of Representatives and current nominee to be the House Speaker there, reportedly heard gunshots outside his home near the North Valley in Bernalillo County on the north side of Albuquerque. And eventually, after investigating, 
He found damage, quote, presumably from gunfire to his house, according to the Albuquerque Journal. Three days after that incident, on December 11, in the early morning hours, gunshots, at least a dozen, were fired at Bernalillo County Commissioner Debbie O'Malley's home, also in the North Valley. More than 12 bullets were found to have struck the house. Luckily, nobody had been injured in any of those three attacks. But the next one, the fourth one, would come very close to tragedy. Just after the start of the new year, on January 3, just after midnight, eight shots rang out at State Senator Linda Lopez's home in southwest Albuquerque. She has also served as the chair of the Bernalillo County Democratic Party since 2003. Lopez found that three bullets went through her daughter's bedroom as the 10-year-old slept. We've since learned that a bullet struck the ceiling of her daughter's bedroom, who had awoken to the gunfire and felt, actually felt material falling from the ceiling, which means it was pretty damn close to an unspeakable tragedy at the time. Police also investigated gunshots fired near the campaign office for Raul Torres as he ran successfully for state attorney general in New Mexico last November. He had previously been the uh, Bernalillo County District Attorney. And also shots were heard near the office of State Senator Mo Mastis, a former state rep who became a state senator last November. The common thread in all of these reported shootings, all of the politicians who appear to have been targeted were Democrats. So really, when the news broke on Monday night, it shouldn't have been much of a surprise to anyone. Nonetheless, uh, it is still shocking and it is still stunning, even if sadly it is not particularly surprising at all. As of this third week in January of 2023, after what has gone on over the last at least two years, it's almost more surprising that something like this has not happened sooner. A failed Republican candidate for the New Mexico State House, described by police as a, quote, election denier, was arrested Monday night in a string of shootings at the homes of state and local Democratic leaders. Republican Solomon Pena is accused of conspiring with and paying four men to carry out shootings at the Albuquerque area homes of two Bernalillo County commissioners and two state legislators, according to Albuquerque police. So at least five men, at least five men were in on this conspiracy to target Democratic officials based on the notion that an election had been somehow rigged against Republicans. They were able to find not just the one guy, not just the ringleader who did it, but he was able to find four others willing to go to the houses of elected Democrats and shoot into them with guns repeatedly. Pena appears to have been motivated by anger over his loss in the November election, according to police. Police spokesperson Gilbert Gallegos said at a news conference early on Monday evening that Pena alleged his defeat was the result of election fraud. Now, I wonder where he got that idea. 
I've read a lot of stories uh, on all of this since last night, and I've yet to see any actual evidence to support Pena's claim. He just sort of generally seems to think if he lost, it must have been fraud. Sound familiar? Pena lost his state house challenge last November, just a month or so before the first related known shots rang out. He lost by a lot. Media had been reporting that initially on this story that he had lost by 3,600 votes. Which, if you don't know which race this was, well, 3,600 votes doesn't sound like that many votes. Uh, So you need to know the race, which race this was, the size of the race, uh, the number of voters. 3,600 could be a relatively small margin. But in fact, in this case, in New Mexico, in this uh, House legislative race, Pena lost to incumbent Democrat uh, Representative Miguel Garcia by just under 50 points. It was not even close. 5,679 to 2,033. In other words, 74% to 26%. Just under 50 points. It was not even close. That, according to the hand-marked paper ballots that were tabulated in the state's most populous county of Bernalillo. And frankly, I've yet to hear any specific questions really challenges legitimate ones to the results of the 2022 elections in Albuquerque at all. That definitely sounds familiar with most of the Republicans around the country claiming that the only way they could lose is because of fraud, yet they never have any actual evidence to evidence prove it. to support it? Well, years ago, after the uh, year 2000 election, after there were very legitimate questions, very legitimate concerns about the votes that were cast back then in 2000 on the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, after that... Um, when when the numbers did not add up at all as far as the number of votes that were reported on the touchscreen systems versus the number of people who actually signed in to vote, it was a mess. So to the state's credit, uh, they moved thereafter to a verifiable hand-marked paper ballot system. And while those are still tallied by computers, the state also makes an effort to ensure that those hand-marked paper ballots are tallied accurately by counting a portion of them by hand after each election. As Robert Adams, the former deputy county clerk for elections in Bernalillo County, uh, he's also the uh, co-author of a report on public policy and election audits in New Mexico. He wrote in a uh, New Mexico newspaper early uh, last year, I think this was. Yeah, early last year in March, he said uh, the new system that they now use in New Mexico, he explained, was a straightforward proposition. A voter marks a paper ballot and then feeds the ballot through a tabulator computer tabulator in order to tabulate their vote. But how do we know that the tabulator counts correctly, he asked correctly before answering. He said, well, now that we have a paper ballot record, we can verify it. A few years after switching from the touchscreens to the hand-marked paper ballots, he notes, we developed additional tools to add to the confidence New Mexicans were developing. As they went to the polls, risk-limiting post-election audits were written into the state election code and procedures were developed through coordination and cooperation with county clerks and the New Mexico Secretary of State. In fact, he wrote again back in early 2022, 
After every state, every statewide election in New Mexico, a certain percentage of paper ballots are selected by random lottery to be hand counted by citizen election officials balanced by the party before the election is actually certified. Those hand counts are compared against the official results. And if a discrepancy is discovered between the ballots that they selected to hand count versus what had been reported by the computers, well, then additional ballots will be selected and hand counted until they can, uh, you know, make sure, make certain, find a certain scientific certainty that the ballots actually match, uh, the hand counted ballots actually match the computer reported Results And this has been written into the state's into election the state code. Law. Right. So it's called a risk-limiting audit. And the protocol for these audits uh, were actually developed by uh, the, the whole idea was sort of invented by a friend of the show and a fairly regular guest over the years, Dr. Philip Stark of UC Berkeley. And while no state or county in the country, frankly, does a perfect job, many of them do a terrible job. Uh, you know, no one does a perfect job of post-election risk-limiting audits. At least they do one to a certain extent in New Mexico. <laughs> At least they try. Yeah, many states and 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 counties do not. You know, they'll they'll simply take the computer-reported results and largely assume they were accurate without bothering to check. At least they check in New Mexico regularly, as written into the state code. And if there have been legitimate reports of concerns in the meantime about their tallies from 2022. I haven't heard or seen them. If you have, feel free to share them with me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I'm happy to look at them. I try to look at every report, every concern that, that, that folks have about the counting of elections. And frankly, there have been damn few legitimate ones since 2022, but even since 2020. Now, there was a, a concern after the 2020 election, at least as far as the Republican Party of New Mexico was concerned. They pretended that they had concerns because, well, Joe Biden won the election there over Donald Trump by almost 11 points, 54 to 43. That was not shocking. After all, Hillary Clinton had defeated Donald Trump in the state back in 2016 by more than eight points. So this was not all that different. And yet the Republican Party decided to pretend that something was amiss. Despite the lack of actual evidence, the lack of real concerns about the reported results in 2020, the New Mexico Republican Party decided to play along with Donald Trump once he began his sore loser temper tantrum campaign to pretend that the election had been stolen from him because he couldn't face the fact that, yeah, he actually lost the election. And the New Mexico Republican Party decided to play along. They demanded the impoundment of all ballots in Bernalillo County, which just happens to be the state's most populous, Democratic-leaning county, despite any, you know, actual legitimate reason to do so. As declared on the state's GOP website, even today I was able to find this. This was published on December 5 of 2020, so just a few weeks after the election, back in uh, the presidential election in 2020. 
The New Mexico Republican Party website uh, declared the Republican Party of New Mexico has launched and financed a lawsuit filed today requesting that all 2020 election ballots in Bernalillo County be impounded. New Mexico law grants candidates the rights to have authorities impound tally sheets, registration certificates, paper ballots, absentee ballots, statements of canvas, absentee ballot applications and absentee ballot registers. The petition, they wrote, filed in New Mexico's 2nd Judicial District Court, asked the court to examine the attributes of ballots cast in the recent unusual election. Unusual? How is it unusual? Well, it was during the worst of the COVID pandemic, but beyond that, there was nothing particularly unusual about it in any way. The party uh, petitioned the state court at the time to impound the ballots in Bernalillo County's 70 Election Day Voting Convenience Center centers, um, 17 early alternative voting locations and 88 absentee voter precincts, as if something had gone terribly wrong there. Despite any such evidence to actually support the claim that something had gone terribly wrong there. The uh, as the New, uh, New Mexico Republican Party chair was quoted uh, in in big bold letters in this little blurb on their website at the time, and even today, quote: "There are questions that still persist in this election that involve election integrity, and we must closely look at what happened here in New Mexico." Well, that sounds scary. That, according to the Republican Party chair, New Mexico. GOP chair Steve Pierce. The report added that the Republican Party of New Mexico is also considering impounding ballots in other counties. In fact, they did file to impound ballots in other counties, such as Socorro County, uh, uh, Grant counties, where, just like Bernalillo, no particular problems were actually found when they reviewed the ballots. The resulting inspections by both Republicans and Democrats resulted in no changes to the election results as far as I was able to find anywhere. But, of course, the point here is not to find problems because they know there you know, are actually none, but to dupe their supporters into believing there are concerns about the election, that the elections had some sort of problems. Otherwise, given how wonderful and popular Republicans are, like Donald Trump, there's no way that they could have actually lost an election unless it was rigged and stolen from them. I mean, after all, did you see those crowds at the Donald Trump rallies back in 2020? Thousands of people who were told the COVID was no danger at all. They came out in mass super spreader events to support their candidate. And yet a smaller number of people came out to the few drive-in rallies with limited space to support uh, Joe Biden at the time. So back to the shootings and the arrest of this sore loser election denying Republican state house candidate in Bernalillo County. Y'all be shocked uh, to learn that Pena was a vocal supporter of former President Donald Trump, who, as you know, claimed fraud, voter fraud in his 2020 election loss, despite any evidence to support his repeated over and over again claims. And despite the fact that his own campaign officials and his own White House attorneys and his very own Department of Justice, including his very own Attorney General Bill Barr, all told him that there was no evidence to support his false claims. And yet, you know, this guy bought into it. 
as did millions of others uh, of other dupes in the Republican Party. Pena, the man who was arrested on Monday night, uh, for his part, he was photographed during his his campaign last year wearing a red Make America Great Again sweatshirt with a stitched gold-colored signature of the former president standing in front of several Trump Make America Great Again flags. The man who shot at the houses of Democratic officials in New Mexico and almost killed one of their 10-year-old daughters was a huge Donald Trump fan. Is anybody surprised by this? Pena took his case to uh, his concerns about the elections, whatever they were, to three county commissioners and to a state senator, some whose homes were targeted in the shootings. Uh, but it was to no avail, according to the police spokesperson, Gilbert Gallego. NBC reports Pena visited the homes of local Democratic leaders to vehemently dispute his election loss by 50 points before he allegedly orchestrated this series of shootings at their residences. According to the elected officials, Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa said in a phone interview with NBC News, quote, Pena came to my house right after the November election. That's got to be scary. He was sort of erratic in the points that he was trying to make, she said, about the election and about how many doors he had knocked on and how many number of votes and how the number of votes didn't match the number of doors that he had knocked on. Barboa said they spoke and he handed her paperwork similar to what others who are questioning elections have given her in the past and other officials uh, during uh, and to other officials during county commission meetings. The commissioner said she grew worried for Pena during the encounter as she thought he was making illogical claims about the results of his own race. Quote, he was just sort of all over the place. The things he was putting together weren't quite connecting or fitting, she said. You can't say because you knocked on a thousand doors, you know you got a thousand votes. Well, why not? Why can't you? Donald Trump cited attendance at his rallies as evidence for why he must have defeated Joe Biden. More people showed up for him than for Joe. Obviously, the election was rigged. Barboa said he was at my door and he was aggressive. He was an election denier. Former County Commissioner Debbie O'Malley shared a similar experience with Pena, she said, around the same time after he first visited her former home before then tracking her down at her current address. Oh, that's creepy. All creepy. This guy came to my home. I was very concerned about it and it was very unsettling, she said. He was angry about losing the election. He felt the election was unfair and untrue. While he did not threaten her during that November encounter, she did call authorities and deputies patrolled her house for a few days. But weeks later, her home was struck with 12 bullets while she and her husband slept. He could have killed us, O'Malley said. Pena claimed the election was rigged in a November 16 comment on his official Twitter account. It is rigged, plain and simple, he demanded. He responded to a post of the election results. Did anybody notice? Did anybody care? One of the meetings he had with a uh, uh, local and state uh, leader became heated, he had said at the time. Quote, one actually led to quite an argument. It was shortly after 
the uh, Gallego said, the police spokesman said that uh, the shootings occurred. State records show that Monday's arrest of Pena's was not his first, not by a long shot, forgive the pun. Across three cases in 2007, Pena was convicted of 20 charges, including burglary, receiving stolen property and larceny. He reported uh, he reportedly served almost seven years in prison and he was ordered to go through alcohol and substance abuse treatment, mental health counseling, 90 days in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and anger management, according to court records. Before he then, after all of that, was nominated by Republicans to become their nominee for state representative in Bernalillo County, New Mexico. Due to his conviction, by the way, he apparently lost his right to vote. He was only eligible for the reinstatement of those rights in 2021, the year that he completed his probation and was nominated by Republicans for elected office. But that means, of course, he probably never actually even got to vote for Donald Trump himself in the years 2016 or 2020. If he did, sounds like he would have been committing voter fraud. Pena's candidacy uh, came under scrutiny over the summer when his opponent, Representative Miguel Garcia of Albuquerque, filed a court challenge to disqualify him because he had been convicted in 2008 of stealing large amounts of goods from several big box retail stores in a reported smash and grab scheme. In September of last year, Second Judicial District Judge Joshua Allison ruled that a state law barring felons from holding office unless they are pardoned by the governor is actually unconstitutional. So Pena remained on the ballot. And less than two months later, he lost the November election by almost 50 points. Must have been rigged. In frequent postings on Twitter, Pena maintained he he didn't lose. The election was rigged, he, 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 he said over and again. On November 15, just after he lost the election, he posted that photo of himself wearing that red Make America Great Again sweatshirt and said, quote, Trump just announced for 2024, I stand by him. I never conceded my House District 14 race, now researching my options. That was just days after he had lost. He also posted a photo of himself that appeared to be from Washington, D.C., that he said was, quote, one of the last pictures I have of the January 6th trip. So, yeah, he was also in D.C. on January 6th during the insurrection. In a reply to someone calling him a criminal on December 28 on social media, Pena said, quote, everyone in the New Mexico government who helped overthrow Trump are the active treasonists who must be placed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for natural life. Once they are gone, I can work on rebuilding Albuquerque. Apparently, this sort of thing has become so commonplace, it would seem, uh, right now that, you know, nobody bothered to be troubled about that. Posting something like that on social media, I guess. Violent rhetoric, and yet it is normalized now. Perhaps we should start listening to these people when they make these sorts of veiled threats. On November 17, in response to a tweet by the New Mexico Secretary of State warning against attempts to manipulate the election certification, uh, certification process. Pena replied, quote, I will attempt to stop 
the certification in Bernalillo County. Until a hand count has been done, it was rigged. Yep. After Pena's arrest on Monday, Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller offered remarks on all of this at a press conference. This situation today, I think, obviously points out that these shootings were orchestrated. They were dangerous attacks, not only to these individuals, which is personally the most terrifying for them, but fundamentally also to democracy. That is why this is so terrible. This type of radicalism is a threat to our nation, and it has made its way to our doorstep right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I know here we are going to push back and we will not allow this to cross the threshold. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this was about a right-wing radical, an election denier who was arrested today, and someone who did the worst imaginable thing you can do when you have a political disagreement, which is turn that to violence. So I saw this breaking news last night, and uh, then a half hour or so later, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, she ran her report on the arrest, and she had uh, covered the, the string of shootings a week earlier on her program, and she reported on the arrest on Monday night, adding, what a surprising turn of events this was. But really, uh, it didn't seem surprising at all. Should any of us actually be surprised? Who did you think would be targeting Democratic elected officials by shooting into their houses? Of course, it was a Republican. Perhaps it was surprising that he was a candidate for office. Certainly, well, maybe surprising that he was able to get four others to join him in this shooting spree. But really, is that all that surprising either? No more surprising than thousands of Trump supporters who were willing to storm the U.S. Capitol in hopes of taking down the U.S. government just over two years ago because Donald Trump told them that their country was being stolen from them and that the election was had been rigged. Despite any evidence, they didn't care. But that's what they were told. And what would you do if you actually came to believe that you were defending your country from a criminal takeover? None of this should be a surprise. Perhaps the biggest surprise is that it's taken two years to actually see something as clearly targeted as this. A political attack, a political violence as clearly targeted as this. An attack by a losing Republican candidate in New Mexico. But read the Internet. Read Twitter. Now more than ever, since all of the election lying trolls have been let back onto Twitter to continue their lies by Elon Musk. Thanks, Elon. They believe this stuff. So, of course, they're going to eventually act on it. They believe they are being heroic and wonderful. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. Perhaps we ought to believe Republicans when they tell us what they are going to do. They've been talking about the so-called coming storm for years now. That's what the QAnon people uh, call it. That's what they have promised. A storm when all of the Democrats would be rounded up and shot on the spot. And now, of course, the QAnons have taken over Congress. So what did you expect would happen? We should believe them when they tell us what they are going to do. What else are they going to do? Well, 
If you take them at their word, they are about to crash the U.S. and global economies if they can. They are telling us as much. Are we listening? That story's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I came in like a wrecking ball I never hit so hard in love All I wanted was to break your wall You know, that, uh... I don't think we played that since Donald Trump came to office and this is uh, true. came into the White House. But it also may be the like theme song. Like a wrecking ball. Yeah, I think it may also be the theme for the Republican Party at this point in the U.S. House. And unfortunately, what they are about to wreck is well, pretty much everything in theory, beginning with the global economy. At least if we take them at their word, which I believe we should. Last week on the program, I spent uh, some time... Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week on the show... forgot to say that. uh, I spent some time explaining uh, what was likely coming sooner than expected as uh, the U.S. reached its debt ceiling, the point of time when we essentially run out of how much money that the government is allowed to borrow in order to pay the bills for the stuff that we have already bought, for the stuff that Congress and presidents of both parties have already appropriated. It's a really dumb law, and you know we shouldn't even have that law, frankly. We, we shouldn't have to vote every time that we need to borrow money to pay for stuff that we're already committed to paying for in order to avoid the first ever debt default by the U.S. government in history. Yeah, this is like taking out a mortgage and then refusing to pay for it. Right. Because, oh, it's uh, we can't afford it. We're just going to stop paying it. And according to every economist and expert out there, if if the government, if the U.S. government defaults on its debts, it would be an absolute disaster for the nation's economy and for the global economy, since so much of it is pegged to the U.S. dollar. We're talking millions of jobs lost, Wall Street crashing, everything else. And yet Republicans had been threatening to hold a a, a vote on uh, hold off a vote on raising the debt limit to hold it hostage yet again, now that they are barely in charge of the U.S. House and now that there is a Democrat once again in the White House. None of this ever is ever a problem when there's a Republican in the White House. The debt ceiling was raised like three times when Donald Trump was in office. You probably haven't even heard about it. Even when there was a Republican controlled uh, House and Senate, they don't care. They You know, it's not a problem. 
It's only to embarrass the Democrats or something. Or to get them to agree to extract major cuts, which they could not otherwise, Republicans otherwise could never get on their own. Well, they think they can use these to get cuts. When I, but they only do it, you know, when a Democrat is in office. They're not right. concerned about, you know, all these Republicans, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, come in, blow up the deficit and they don't have a problem with that but when a democrat is in office republicans like to act like they're outraged about all of the government spending that they helped to cause and only now uh you know they must rein in this out of control spending and debt which as it turns out uh doesn't actually have anything to do with the debt limit the debt ceiling that needs to be raised that's about paying for stuff that we have already spent that we have already bought it's not about more spending anyway on friday treasury secretary janet yellen made it official she said that the treasury department would need to begin ex- so-called extraordinary measures this week to ensure that the federal government is able to meet its payment obligations but that it cannot guarantee The U.S. will make it beyond early June without defaulting on the debt unless the debt ceiling is raised. And also on Friday, as Washington Post reported, House Republicans are preparing a plan to breach the debt limit, telling the Treasury Department what to do if Congress and the White House do not agree to lift the nation's debt limit later this year, underscoring the brinkmanship newly empowered Republicans will bring to the high-stakes negotiations over averting a U.S. default. That, according to six people in The Washington Post, aware of the internal discussions. The plan, which was previously unreported until Friday, was part of the... This was part of the secret deal reached this month to resolve the standoff between the far-right extremists in the House and Representative Kevin McCarthy over his election as House Speaker. Congressman Chip Roy, one of the leading far right wingers uh, who helped broker that deal, told The Washington Post that McCarthy agreed to pass a payment prioritization plan by the end of the first quarter of the year. Uh, What does that mean? Well, in the preliminary stages of being drafted, the GOP proposal would call on President uh, the Biden administration to make only the most critical federal payments If the Treasury Department comes up against the statutory limit on what it legally can borrow, such a move would be unprecedented. And this hypothetical proposal, uh, which is supposed to protect things like Social Security and Medicare, uh, would still leave out huge swaths of critical federal expenditures on things like Medicaid, food safety inspection. That's going away. Border control. Oh, I guess they're doing away with that. Air traffic control. We don't need that. Who needs planes that fly safely? (laughs) This is just to name a handful of thousands of programs, apparently. Democrats are also likely to accuse Republicans of prioritizing payments to U.S. bondholders, which includes Chinese banks, and putting that over American citizens. The White House has repeatedly said it will not play ball with this hostage-taking. There is going to be no negotiation over it, said uh, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is something that must get done. No negotiation. She said this over and over again. Yet Republicans, uh, having captured their hostage, they were not taking, they are not taking no for an answer. 
Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska, Republican of Nebraska, in an interview uh, this week on ABC this week on Sunday, said when President Biden says he's just going to refuse to negotiate with Republicans on any concessions, I don't think that's right either. Really? Really, Congressman? So you believe that we should negotiate with terrorists then? Because that's what these folks are, economic terrorists. Make no mistake. Such a bill, in any event, even if they pass it in the House, it would not pass the Senate. It would not be signed by Joe Biden. And other than that, it is not even feasible. It, feasible. it would not prevent the economy from crashing anyway, which I got to say is perhaps the GOP hope at this point. Let's crash the economy. Let's go into a depression. That won't play well in the next presidential election. Surely they'll want to elect a Republican instead of the Democrat who oversaw this disaster, right? Brian Rydell, a policy analyst for the conservative Manhattan Institute and a former staffer to Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, told the uh, Washington Post that something like this was already examined the last time there was a Democrat in the White House and Republicans controlled Congress when back when we were hitting the debt ceiling back in 2011. Quote, studying this in 2011 convinced us again, he's from a conservative think tank, convinced us this would be a really bad idea and something we really did not want to happen, he explained. We didn't end the exercise looking at this saying this is feasible and smart we said let's avoid this at all costs because it's going to be a disaster and in fact uh, as i think we noted last week just the prospect of a uh, u.s debt default due to republican brinkmanship just just the concern about it happening at the time back in 2011 resulted in credit rating agencies downgrading their rating for the u.s federal government in 2011 for the first time ever in history since the coming debt ceiling standoff was first unveiled Last year, Democrats have been unequivocal that they will not engage in such a dangerous game. That is good. And I don't because I don't think that they should, but they should take this threat damned seriously. As Talking Points uh, Memo's Josh Marshall titled uh, a short column on this, echoing the headline on that presidential daily briefing famously ignored by then-President George W. Bush just before 9-11. Josh's headline was, quote, House GOP determined to strike U.S. I hope we are listening to what they are threatening, and I hope we're taking it seriously. As Josh writes, the Post calls this an emergency plan for breaching the debt limit. But it is not that, he says. It can't work. It couldn't pass into law, even if it could work. This isn't actually a plan to avoid default, he says. It's a messaging plan aimed at being able to blame the White House for the federal debt default and the ensuing financial crisis after it happens. House Republicans want to be able to say, we offered this prioritization plan and you rejected it, so obviously this is on you. He notes the real import of this revelation is that it shows how serious House Republicans are not uh, simply threatening a U.S. debt default, but actually forcing a default to happen. 
He says that's the real story. They got McCarthy to agree to put in place the plan, really a messaging plan that assumes they will force the country to default on its debt later this year. So, yeah, buckle up. And not only was that one of uh, McCarthy's agreements to do this with his far right side of his caucus, but they also included a, a, an agreement as part of allowing him to be speaker that allows them to hold a snap vote any time to uh, vacate the chair, the speaker's chair, if he does not do what it is they want him to do. This is, in fact, a very dangerous moment. Politically, and as the uh, hardest working man in the news business, Ali Velshi explained last night, a uh, very dangerous moment economically as well. Now, I know what you're thinking. We've been here before. Many times Republicans have made threats. They've even shut down the government a few times on this issue. But sometimes, well, someone always backs down in the end. We'll never fail to raise the debt ceiling. This is all a game of chicken. That's what you're thinking, right? And you might be right. I hope you're right. But I don't think we should underestimate the resolve of these Republicans who have already demonstrated that they are prepared to burn the whole house down. Just listen to the congressman, James Comer of Kentucky. It's not a random congressman. He is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and he does not sound like he's going to back down. We cannot continue to operate with these types of deficits. Our national debt is one of our biggest threats to our national security. Uh, China continues to have leverage over us because of the basic financial strength of their uh, overall economy versus ours with respect to the national debt. So Republicans were elected uh, with a mandate from the American people in the midterm elections. We campaigned on the fact that we were going to be serious about spending cuts. So the Senate's going to have to recognize the fact that we're not going to budge until we see meaningful reform with respect to spending. All right, so this time the debt ceiling fight is different. For one, the politics are different. The motivations of this new Republican caucus are not clear. It does not appear that they're motivated by self-preservation, considering that voters do not tend to like it when their representatives do things that could thrust America into the economic abyss. And that is what could happen here, because the overall economic situation is also different. Now, right now, we've got a pretty stable economy. Unemployment remains historically low. Wages continue to rise. We're seeing positive economic growth. But we're in a delicate place. Two-thirds of economists surveyed by the World Economic Forum say that they expect a global recession this year. And crucially, we have inflation. It's coming down, but it's still three times as high as we'd like it to be. And there is a big problem with having inflation and a recession at the same time. And here's why. Because you fight inflation by raising interest rates. That discourages people from spending and cools down the economy. But you fight recession by lowering interest rates and encouraging people to spend. And you cannot do both of those things at the same time. If we get ourselves into that position where there is no remedy for the problem, inflation and recession, we could be in for a very difficult few years. Economic growth would be low. Home prices would collapse. Jobs would be lost. Your 401k would be devastated. That's why this is such a dangerous time for Republicans to be playing around like this. If they decide not to lift the debt ceiling, it will undoubtedly start a fiscal showdown that will have major consequences for the American people, probably for the globe. So when they make these threats, 
They are really playing with your prosperity and that of the whole country. That of the whole country uh, should be underscored there, because if they do this, while they're claiming they're concerned about the debt and spending, if they do this, this will cost the nation hundreds of billions of dollars. It will make the very problem that they are pretending to be concerned about much worse. Again, this is not about spending cuts. They are not, uh, you know, uh, trying to reduce spending somehow. This is stuff that's already spent. This is stuff we just need to pay for. That was economic journalist Ali Velshi of MSNBC. Last Was that last night? Yes. On, uh, last night. So uh, Democrats, by all accounts, they do seem ready to play hardball here in response to this. That's probably the right thing to do to make it clear as loudly and as early as possible that they will not be negotiating on this matter. They ain't playing here. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock uh, told this week on Sunday, quote, we shouldn't be playing chicken with the American economy. This is not a game. This is people's lives. Democratic Senator from uh, Hawaii, Brian Schatz, he was a bit more colorful. He borrowed uh, the counteroffer from The Godfather, saying in exchange for not crashing the United States economy, you get nothing. That's what he told the Daily Beast. He said, you don't get a cookie. You don't get to be treated like you're the second coming of LBJ. You're just a person doing the bare minimum of not intentionally screwing over your own constituents for insane reasons. So good. I don't think we should negotiate with terrorists either. But we should take them at their word that this is their plan and hope and frankly pray. And I'm not a praying guy, but I think we should be (laughs) praying right around now that there are enough non-insane Republicans still in the U.S. House to vote with Democrats to do the right thing. And once again, vote to raise the debt ceiling to pay for the stuff that we already bought and to keep the nation and the globe from descending into a recession or even a depression. Because right now, that's the plan. That's what your Republican Party in your House of Representatives is planning to do. And when you hear about them uh, planning to breach the debt limit and how they're going to do it, that assumes they are actually going to do it. Pay attention. And hey, speaking of global disasters, <laughs> Desi Doyen joins us next on the broadcast for the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Okay. A 
enough disturbing news from me uh, for this hour. Des, it's your turn. Yes, disturbing news. In the latest Green News report, water levels have reached historic lows, and competition for the remaining water is growing fierce. As California recovers from epic storms, the fight for water is just beginning in the U.S. West. Massive boost to U.S. solar manufacturing now underway thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Plus, we were excellent scientists. Exxon scientists in the 1970s accurately predicted today's warming levels and weather disasters. All of those accurate and ignored predictions and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when the government takes control of your ability to cook, heat, travel, and eat... The alarm bells really start to ring. Those aren't alarm bells ringing in your head, Stuart Varney of Fox News. Good luck. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, after about three weeks, I'm happy to say things are finally, finally beginning to dry out here in California, and that may not be good news, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, California has begun the costly process of repairing damage from that series of intense atmospheric river storms and floods that destroyed infrastructure and crops and killed at least 19 people. Even with all of that torrential rain, officials say the state's reservoirs are still only about 80 percent full on average. Mm. The rains helped but won't end the state's 20-year historic drought. According to UC Davis climate scientist Paul Ulrich in an interview with Fox Weather, this latest round of storms has accelerated state and local efforts to strengthen infrastructure and build water capture projects as quickly as possible. I've never seen a year in which somebody's actually said we have exactly as much water as we need. We're going to see a lot more state investment in building up that infrastructure, reinforcing our existing infrastructure and making sure that we're prepared whether we get hit by drought or flood. Not a moment too soon. In Arizona, the historic western mega drought is shrinking the Colorado River, ushering in the era of water competition. On January 1st, the city of Scottsdale, which gets the majority of its water from the Colorado River, has cut off the tiny rural community of Rio Verde foothills from the city water supply that the neighborhood has relied on for decades, saying that there is not enough to share. Water is now delivered by truck. Prices have nearly tripled, and potential solutions are are mired in political division and dwindling options. These folks are out there in the middle of the desert. A lot of them have no wells. Those people who have wells have seen them dry up. And they're not getting any help. This is just the beginning. In recent comments to CBS News, Scottsdale Mayor David Ortega underscored the tough decisions ahead in the arid state. They should manage their own destiny with their own water. The constant decline of the water source is reality. Yeah. We have to adapt, and then we have to adapt more, and we have to adapt more. And you have to stop building in the middle of the desert. Buckle up. The U.K.'s Weather Service projects that a warming El Nino weather pattern will form in the Pacific Ocean later this year, which tends to goose global temperatures and turbocharge extreme weather across the planet. The U.K. Met Office projects that both 2023 and 2024 are likely to be hotter than 2022, which was already the fifth hottest year on record and brought record-shattering heat waves and floods across the Northern Hemisphere. I think I'm starting to see a pattern here. 
In other news, a new study exposes that not only did oil giant ExxonMobil know as early as the 1970s that burning fossil fuels would cause catastrophic climate change, but Exxon scientists nailed their projections. The study is the first to examine the performance of Exxon's climate modeling and shows that Exxon executives knew to the tenth of a degree just how much they were going to warm the planet and the weather disasters it would bring. To a tenth of a degree. We were excellent scientists. <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, you are. Instead of warning the public, Big Oil spent millions over the intervening decades, quote, orchestrating lobbying and propaganda campaigns to delay climate action, misleading the public to cast doubt on the science. As you heard, the scientists recently testified in Congress they knew exactly what would happen. But of course, no one listened to them other than the executives who heard what they had to say and then spent millions to make sure the American people did not. Finally, a bit of positive news. South Korean solar equipment manufacturer Qcells has announced the largest yet investment in domestic solar in the U.S., $2.5 billion for a new manufacturing complex in Georgia to build solar panels and components, which could ultimately supply 30 percent of U.S.-made solar panels in five years. The company cited climate incentives in President Biden and the Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act, which all Republicans voted against. Even as the those same Republicans are now claiming they're going to get to work to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Newsflash, it's already coming back. But thanks anyway, Republicans. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We are the future. Let's get to work. Indeed, let's get to work. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. You say Republicans are promising to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Yeah. that Biden and yeah. the Democrats are already, already bringing doing. back to yeah. the U.S., but now they're trying, the Republicans are trying to tank all of that. Crash with this the economy. Debt stuff, yeah, so. at the same time. Crazy. So I'm starting to not believe a word they say. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated and an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download them all for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who help support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate, where we are 100% listener supported. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Let's get to work. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1898. That was the day workers in the textile mills of New Bedford, Massachusetts, walked out on strike. They were organized along craft lines into five different unions. Regardless of craft, mill owners inflicted a 10% wage cut, which would prove devastating given the fact that whole families worked in the mills. When the wage cut took effect, spinners effectively shut down 22 mills owned by nine companies. Having formed an amalgamated strike committee, weavers, loom fixers, carters, and slasher tenders all stayed away in support. Workers' leaders like Samuel Gompers, Eugene V. Debs, and Daniel DeLeon of the Socialist Labor Party all visited the strikers to give encouragement and inspiration. Debs alone acknowledged the role of women in the strike as workers, and not just as wives, mothers, daughters, or sisters. Before the strike, there had already been discord over strike demands. The Weavers insisted on adding the fines issue. They constituted 40% of mill workers, and their job duties included correcting the mistakes of other trades. Manufacturers routinely fined Weavers for material deemed imperfect, yet still profited from selling their products. The fine system wrought havoc on Weaver families, and they wanted it abolished. The rest of the unions sympathized with their plight, but insisted the strike would fail unless they focused solely on the issue of wages. Cuts. The weavers persisted and the demand stuck. By April, the strike collapsed. Workers went back with nothing gained. But the strike proved that workers across craft lines could strike and support each other in an industrial manner. It also proved that men and women workers could effectively organize a strike and pick it together. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2.